Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Gilbert King discusses the infamous Groveland case. By the morning, Norma Paget had made these accusations that she had been abducted and sexually assaulted by four African-Americans in Lake County. We'll discuss the West Florida Rebellion, on September 23, 1810, American settlers attacked and overran Fort San Carlos in Baton Rouge. And talk about maroons in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. As Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the books Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America, and Beneath a Ruthless Sun, A True Story of Violence, Race, and Justice Lost and Found, Gilbert King chronicles a difficult period of Florida history. Much of his research focuses on the infamous Groveland story, which begins in Lake County. Back in 1949, a young woman by the name of Norma Paget and her husband, Willie Paget. Um, she was 17. He was a little bit older than her at the time. Rumors were going around town that Willie had gotten physical with his wife and there was a separation. Uh, and so even though Norma Paget was married at the age of 17, uh, she was quickly separated um, and the family sort of got involved because they didn't think this was turning out to be a very mature match. Um, but by the summer of 1949, uh, Willie Paget sort of wanted to get things going again with his wife, a second chance, I guess you could say. And so he asked her out on a date um, and picked up some whiskey and they went out dancing in Lake County. And on their way home from uh, this, I think it was American Legion Lodge in Claremont, uh, they were driving down a road heading towards to get a late night um, snack or something. And apparently they had some car problems. Something happened on the side of the road we're not really quite sure exactly what, but one thing we do know is that by the morning, uh, Norma Paget had made these accusations that she had been abducted and sexually assaulted by four African-Americans in Lake County. Sheriff Willis McCall decided who was guilty of the alleged crimes before any evidence was gathered. He personally directed Ku Klux Klansmen to burn down African-American homes in the Lake County community of Stuckey Still in retaliation for the alleged attack on Norma Paget. The morning after the burnings, McCall toured the destruction with a photographer from Life magazine, Gilbert King. What he doesn't tell him is that the night before, Willis McCall was actually at the scene and basically field directing the Klan as to which houses to burn down. Um, so that we learned later through the records. But as far as this photographer knew, he was just showing up with law enforcement 
to look at the damage of the Klan. And this sort of speaks to the, the blurring of the lines and, and the mixing uh, between the Ku Klux Klan and law enforcement. And this is something that Stetson Kennedy had been writing about for a very long time, which is a really interesting way to look at what was happening in the South a lot of times. Uh, in fact, Stetson Kennedy said something to me which uh, really resonated when I met him, boy, maybe 15 years ago. Uh, he said, you know, it, when you look at white supremacy in the South, it's just a changing of the uniforms. It started out with the, you know, Confederate uniform. Um, then it switches over to the hood and the robe of the Klan. And then when that is becoming unacceptable, there's a new uniform that comes into place and that's the uniform of law enforcement. And that's what you really see when you look at the 40s and 50s especially, um, is this mixing between law enforcement and the Klan. Um, and and I, I've talked to some deputies in Lake County who were alive you know, on McCall's force and, and they told me, you know, what they could not accomplish through the law, they would just accomplish later on through the Klan. Uh, and so that mixing really plays a really important role in this story and many stories in the Jim Crow South. Very quickly, three of the so-called Groveland Four were arrested by Willis McCall and his deputies, and evidence that was later proven to be manufactured was created to establish a case against them. Suspect Ernest Thomas was shot and killed, Walter Irvin, Charles Greenlee, and Samuel Shepard were taken into custody. These defendants were arrested, taken into the basement of the Lake County Courthouse, and beaten so severely they had welts all over their body, um, bruises, teeth were knocked out to get what Willis McCall called the confessions. Um, and later on, he stood on the courthouse steps and held up some blank pieces of paper that said, I'm holding in my hand uh, the confessions from three of the suspects, which you know, was not true. It was really, I think, designed to just sort of placate um, the crowd because um, they had shown up at the jail. They were expecting a lynching. They thought, they believed that the Groveland defendants were in the jail. And by the hundreds, they showed up outside the jail and they demanded to get the defendants brought down, which you know, could have easily resulted in a lynching. Uh, Sheriff Willis McCall, smartly enough, was hailed as a hero, really pre preventing a lynching. Uh, and the New York Times ran a big story, fast-talking sheriff prevents lynching in Lake County, Florida. Um, so he really does kind of start off as a hero in this story, although we all, all obviously know there's something else going on behind the scenes. Within 48 hours of the defendant's false arrest, the Orlando Morning Sentinel poisoned the jury pool by running an editorial cartoon on the front page showing four electric chairs. The outcome of the trial was a foregone conclusion with each defendant receiving a guilty verdict. NAACP lawyer Thurgood Marshall joined the defense team for the appeal. Thurgood Marshall and his lawyers were told that there was no possible way that you could send an African-American lawyer into the courtroom and have him actually question the word of a white woman. They said that would be the quickest way to inflame the 12 white male jurors and to send their clients to the electric chair. And so Marshall and his lawyers knew that that was actually an accurate assessment of what was really acceptable in the day in Lake County at the time. And so they hired um, a white lawyer by the name of Alex Akerman. Um, no white lawyers wanted this case at all. It was a career ender, but Akerman's um, father had been on some pretty interesting cases himself. And Akerman 
himself had represented Virgil Hawkins and four other African-Americans to integrate the University of Florida. So his career was already ruined, um, basically, in, in Central Florida. So he was willing to take this case. You know, he was an interesting person who was willing to look at these cases when at the time there were not a lot uh, of white lawyers who would have taken a case like this to defend African-Americans in such an explosive themed case. With falsified evidence and perjured witness testimony, guilty verdicts were inevitable in the Groveland rape trials. Thurgood Marshall took the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the justices overturned the verdicts and ordered a new trial. And unhappy Willis McCall took matters into his own hands. While personally transporting two of the defendants, McCall claimed he had car trouble and the two prisoners tried to escape. McCall shot and killed Sam Shepard. Walter Irvin pretended to be dead but was still alive. Gilbert King. As Walter Irvin arrives at the hospital, he begins to get, uh, the word begins to be spreading around uh, the community that he is um, telling a very different story than the one that Willis McCall tells. The doctors are saying that he's talking about the evening he remembers. He has great clarity. And so the following morning, Thurgood Marshall, his lawyers all show up at the hospital in Lake County. And here's a photograph that was taken. You can see Walter Irvin laying there in bed. There's a reporters, the stenographer, there's members of the FBI are there, uh, Marshall and his lawyers are there, and they're questioning Walter Irvin about the night before. And Irvin saying, there was no flat tire. He just got around, opened the door and just opened fire. It was just cold-blooded murder. He shot Sam Shepard three times. The last shot went right between his eyes, killing him instantly. Irvin says, I'm handcuffed to him. There's nothing I can do. McCall reaches in and drag Sam Shepard out of the car. And Irvin says, I just fell out too. He said, uh, the sheriff then shot him twice, once in the chest and once in the side. And then the story gets truly horrifying. He says, he's laying there, he's not dead yet. He's pretending to be dead. He hears Willis McCall get on the radio and call back his deputy, James Yates to the scene. Then he hears Yates's car, hears the footsteps. And the next thing he knows, he's feeling a flashlight shining over his face. And he opens his eyes and he hears the deputy say, this one ain't dead yet. And he sees the deputy point a gun straight down and a flash from the gun. That last bullet went straight through Walter Irvin's neck, still did not kill him. Um, so he's pretending to be dead. He's laying there, still conscious. He says he hears them say, we got to make it look like an escape. And they start tearing at his clothes. They pull some of McCall's hair out of his head, put it in the body of Sam Shepard in his hands. Uh, they rip the clothes. And, and so they're, they're making this look like an escape attempt. And, and Irvin's saying, why would I escape? I, I just was victorious in the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall's my lawyer. I'm not making a run for it while I'm handcuffed. Doesn't make any sense. Federal investigators proved that Walter Irvin's terrifying story was true and that Sheriff Willis McCall was lying about the shooting. FBI is listening to this. And they're thinking, well, we've recovered five of the bullets from the bodies of Sam Shepard and Walter Irvin. The sixth bullet that went straight through Irvin's neck, we're never going to find that because it was not lodged in his body. But they're thinking, according to, to Sheriff Willis McCall's version, they're never going to find that bullet. He said they were charging at the time. But they say, if Walter Irvin's telling the truth, we have an idea where that sixth bullet might be. 
And so the FBI rushes back to the crime scene from the night before, and they find the blood spots about 10 inches wide. And that's where Walter Irvin was laying the night before. And they start digging down with a little shovel beneath that blood spot. And 10 inches below the surface of that soil, they find a 38 caliber bullet directly below the blood spot. And right away, the FBI knows that Willis McCall is lying, that this is cold-blooded murder. Now they have forensic evidence to back up Walter Irvin's version of the story. And they write a report that's absolutely damning. It's encouraging prosecution of McCall and his deputy for murder and attempted murder. Remarkably, the story goes nowhere. The case goes nowhere. Uh, the U.S. attorney in Tampa, Herbert Phillips, a known segregationist himself, um, declines to go forward with this case against the sheriff and the deputy. And the judge, Truman Futch, in Lake County, says because the coroner's jury was so efficient and so thorough in their investigation, and because they found that Sheriff Willis McCall was defending himself that evening, there's no need to impanel a grand jury with any of this evidence because the coroner's jury did such a thorough job. Tragically, it was Sheriff Willis McCall who picked his own coroner's jury. Um, he picked friends and associates, and naturally they did what was expected of them. Not only was Willis McCall never charged with murder, he served as sheriff in Lake County for another two decades until 1972. Gilbert King is author of the books Devil in the Grove and Beneath a Ruthless Sun. His keynote presentation for the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum can be seen online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the West Florida Rebellion is perhaps not that well-known, but it did have a significant impact on American history, right? Yes, it did. One of the most unusual special issues of the Florida Historical Quarterly was published in fall 2011. What made it unusual was its focus on what in 1810 was called Spanish West Florida, an area between the Pearl River and the Mississippi River in what is now the state of Louisiana. It was the scene of the so-called West Florida Rebellion that occurred under the Lone Star flag of the West Florida Republic. 
As the commemoration of the rebellion got underway, historian Sam Hyde approached me about publishing a special issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly on the event. I had to give it some serious thought. After all, this was really about Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama history. The farthest extension of the republic ended at the Perdido River, even though Milton, Florida, claims to have lived under the Lone Star flag. But Professor Hyde made a compelling argument that local and national actions associated with the West Florida Rebellion established precedents for future American foreign policy and set the stage for American imperialism of the late 19th century. I must admit also that it appealed to my own editorial imperialism to push the Florida boundaries into Louisiana. I agreed to publish the special issue. Most Americans have never heard of the West Florida Rebellion and the Republic it spawned, so a brief bit of background is in order. President Thomas Jefferson's purchase of the Louisiana Territory from the French in 1803 did not include all of modern-day Louisiana. The territory that lay between the Mississippi River on the west and the Pearl River on the east was claimed by Spain, although a significant number of American citizens had settled in this region and they believed the area rightfully belonged to the U.S. As Hyde notes in his introduction to the special issue, the area had been successively claimed by France, Britain, and Spain and was a chaotic cauldron of divided loyalties, overlapping land claims, and differing perspectives on the nature and purpose of government. In addition, Spain's hold on the area was weak. The only significant garrison was located at Pensacola, with smaller posts at Mobile and Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge had only 30 or so soldiers to defend Spanish claims. And Spanish control over West Florida was contested by three different factions, right? It was. The American faction resented their exclusion from the Louisiana Purchase and advocated annexation by the United States. Spanish loyalists held lucrative land grants and enjoyed little interference from the Spanish government. Most paid little or no taxes and were free from the types of services like jury duty that are required of citizens. Finally, there were independents who wanted to create their own nation. During the summer of 1810, plans for the rebellion were completed, and on September 23, 1810, American settlers attacked and overran Fort San Carlos in Baton Rouge. They declared themselves under the rule of the Republic of West Florida and established the capital at St. Francisville. On December 15, 1810, Congress declared the territory part of the United States, although Spain did not cede the area until 1819 and the signing of the Adams-Ones Treaty. Well, Connie, how is this scuffle in the wilderness a factor in national and international events? Jim Cusick argued in his article that both East and West Florida of the era represented not a frontier but a borderland, that is, an area in which borders are porous and loyalties are weak and influenced by competing government structures and regulations. He notes that on the borderlands, concepts of loyalty are highly localized, and self-interest and self-protection are the chief traits of border residents. 
Authority in borderland areas was subject to challenge, not by the oppressed, he wrote, but by the ambitious and discontented. In the period 1778 to 1818, the borderlands of the Floridas were marked by 14 episodes of conspiracy, revolt, and invasion. Encouraged by the shifting European alliances created by the Napoleonic Wars that left their American claims unattended and white hunger for indigenous land, violence and rebellion characterized the borderlands of both the East and West Florida. Steve Belko ties the West Florida Rebellion to the establishment of American foreign policy, specifically the creation of the Monroe Doctrine. On October 27, 1810, acting on reports of the West Florida Rebellion, President James Madison met secretly with his cabinet and issued the No Transfer Resolution, a statement denying the right of European powers to transfer land in the Western Hemisphere to other European nations. It was ideologically fundamental to the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Acting on the President's request, Congress confirmed the No Transfer Resolution and the occupation of West Florida to the Perdido River. In December 1811, Congress admitted Louisiana to the Union, including the area between the Pearl and Mississippi Rivers. National and international events were factors in the West Florida Rebellion, and in turn, the rebellion shaped American foreign policy. Interesting as always. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Jambalaya, crawfish pie, feely gumbo. Cause tonight I'm gonna see Mama Shazamio. Pick guitar, fill fruit jar, and be gay Son of a gun, we'll have big fun on the bio. This is Florida Frontiers. Descendants of escaped slaves in Florida were called Maroons. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. From the introduction of slavery until the mid-19th century, escaped slaves often banded together for protection and formed their own independent communities. In Florida, maroon groups fiercely resisted colonial powers who tried to re-enslave them by forming alliances with Seminoles. Dr. Justin Iverson is the historian for the 403rd Wing of the Air Force Reserve at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. He wrote an article in the fall 2019 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly called Fugitives on the Front, Maroons in the Gulf Coast Borderlands War, 1812 to 1823. Dr. Iverson told me more about the Maroons of Florida. Maroons is sort of someone who's a runaway enslaved person, or maybe they've been born free into a Maroon community. And Maroon bands are basically just these groups of, of runaway enslaved peoples um, who form their autonomous groups living outside and away from slavery. And so the term maroon is actually derived from the Spanish word cimarron, uh, which kind of meant like wild or, or beast. So that's kind of the point. These are runaway slave communities. And then they obviously, they can survive long enough, have children and, and prosper and, and have people that are born free. But if they hadn't been living in that society, they'd be enslaved by wherever they are in, in the Caribbean, Latin America, or here in the United States. 
In Florida, Maroons and Seminoles became allies and created communities together in order to protect their autonomy. So their objective in Florida then is to evade re-enslavement or enslavement if they're born free in these communities. And combine that with Seminole Indians is to just avoid white encroachment into Florida, into their land. Um, and so these objectives are pretty much the same across the board in the Atlantic world. If you look at other maroon groups in, say, Jamaica or Brazil or in Haiti, uh, it's always to avoid re-enslavement from white slave owners. So they fight various maroon wars to prevent that, or sometimes they'll ally with other European imperial rivals to form a stronger coalition and, uh, and stop slave owners from capturing them and, and bringing them back into slavery. And so that's the goal in Florida, really from the late 18th century and then the first couple decades of the 19th century and before the Seminoles are removed from Florida to go out west into Oklahoma and Texas. In the first decades of the 19th century, Maroon communities flourished in Florida as imperial powers fought for control of the region. Maroons in Florida gained power by conducting raids on plantations. Maroons conduct a lot of raids, especially across the Georgia-Florida border um, in the first two decades of the 19th century. And a significant purpose of conducting these raids is um, not only to gather supplies and goods, things that they can use, it could be clothes, weapons, food especially is important, but, but also it's to capture people. And uh, what Maroons do throughout the Atlantic world, and that's what the Seminole Maroons do in Florida, is you capture other plantation slaves during these plantation raids, so that they can join your community. But the general idea is they capture people to join their community, to build that community, um, so they can later integrate them. So the point is to just gather people, collect people uh, on these raids so that they join your community, so they can build your community, become bigger and stronger over time. The Treaty of Moultrie Creek, signed in 1823 near St. Augustine, ended the first Seminole War in Florida. The treaty also set up a reservation system for Seminoles in Florida and directed the Seminoles to return any escaped slaves to white owners. Seventeen Seminole chiefs signed the treaty, along with several Maroons. One signatory of the treaty was Vacapacasi, or Cow Driver, a leader of a Maroon band who was part Black and part Native American. After the treaty, the Seminoles and their allies were forced to fight again for their freedom. Many Seminoles and Black Seminoles were removed from Florida by the United States government and sent to reservations out west. Dr. Iverson. Even though the, the treaty is signed and, and the Seminoles are supposed to uh, return Black Seminoles or Seminole Maroons, these, these members who are of, of African descent that are among their community uh, living in Florida, they don't actually do it. So these Seminole Maroons will thrive still in Florida for another couple decades. Most of them move further south. The treaty at Moultrie Creek was in northern Florida, so a lot of these Maroons moved further south to um, communities near Tampa, and even further south after that. And then there's this big conflagration in the 1830s and early 1840s during the Second Seminole War, in which a lot of these black Seminoles, I call them Seminole Maroons, fight. And then, unfortunately, they lose that war, too, and part of the treaty at Payne's Landing that settled after the Second Seminole War forces the Seminoles to move west and to leave black members of the nation in Florida to be sold back into slavery. And so they don't let a lot of those members stay in Florida to be re-enslaved. So that, um, a lot of these black Seminoles, these Seminole Maroons, move to Oklahoma and Texas after the Second Seminole War, where they are still threatened by being re-enslaved by, by white owners in those regions and even by some Native Americans um, in the Seminole Nation, as well as the Creek and Cherokee that are already in the Southwest. After the Treaty of Moultrie Creek, 
Some Maroons headed to Mexico after slavery was abolished there in 1829 and created Maroon communities there. Many Maroons from Florida also found refuge in the Bahamas, where their descendants still live today. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can always find us online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.